0: Working Class Audio is brought to you by Universal Audio, Audio Audio-Technica, Lauten Audio, Focal Monitors, and Gearsluts.com. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 174.
1: Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your
0: host, Matt Boudreau. Thanks Chuck. Hey everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 174 you're listening to. My guest today is Mr. Jack Endino. Of course he is well known for recording Nirvana's debut album Bleach, but as you'll see if you dig into his discography, his work goes so far beyond that Bleach record. I know that everybody likes to talk about that record, but He's done a lot of stuff, a lot of stuff. He's also, like, for example, he's won a Latin Grammy for his work with Barrett Martin. Uh, He's worked with a ton of bands, including High on Fire, Hot Hot Heat, Toxic Holocaust. He's worked with Bruce Dickinson from Iron Maiden. I met Jack many years ago, and I got to say, there's several things I like about Jack, but one of the things is I like his straightforwardness. I like his integrity. And if you go to his website, indino.com, have a read. It's great. In Jack's words... The appearance of it is like, you know, early 2000 HTML, but the content on it is really fantastic. It's it's a bunch of rants, it's a bunch of opinions, but there's a lot of advice and a lot to be learned just from Jack's experience in, you know, creating a blog and documenting things over time. I think you'll find... It's a, it's a great resource, and I'm going to list it in the show notes, so please check it out. That's at indino.com. So very excited to have Jack on. So Jack and Dino coming up here on the Working Class Audio podcast. All right, so let me dork out on you for a bit. In my uh, conversations in setting up the interview with Jack and setting up the logistics of it, he made an offhanded comment that caught my attention. He said um, that he was using Linux at home as his, on his main computer, and, uh, in, you know, when we're trying to coordinate, you know, what technologies we're going to use to record ourselves and where to do it and all that. And so after our interview, I started to remember, All oh, right, I you know, I was starting to dig into Linux as uh, an alternative operating system for, you know, older Macs uh, primarily. And, of course, it'll work on older PCs as well. And sure enough, I had a, uh, a MacBook sitting around, it had like maybe two gigs of RAM and maybe like a hundred and I don't know, 60 gigabyte hard drive. And it was uh dead essentially as a Mac. I was, I- it just wouldn't boot up. And I was having such trouble with it. So I went and found um, an installation or distribute, I guess you would say distro. So of course, Linux comes in many different flavors and shapes and sizes and all that different companies. And so I found a installation of Ubuntu, I, I guess that's what you what you say Ubuntu Mint. And I installed that on this old Mac. And let me tell you something, friends, if you got a bunch of old machines sitting around, and you want you know, a usable machine that's good for being on the internet, checking email, Facebook, if you must, or checking the news or just, you know, using it as a simple business machine, not necessarily as an audio machine, unless it's, you know, super uh, powerful. So uh, I did this, this machine runs great. It's it's really fascinating. And, you know, it's kind of, if you're looking at it, it kind of has a combination of Mac and Windows features, I guess. Uh, things that we're used to, and uh, some things you'll recognize from, you know, oh, that's very Mac looking, or oh, that's very Windows looking. Uh, but it's really interesting. So um, I'll I'll put down uh, a couple of the the resources that I came across. Uh, check them out for yourself if you're uh, feeling like, uh, hey, I need a weekend project. Let me install uh, Linux on an old Mac or an old PC and see what it can do for you. Uh, maybe it could be. Uh, I don't know. It could be a a machine that you use exclusively for, you know, one particular task or another, maybe Skype. I don't know. But anyways, my conversation with Jack reminded me of all that. So, uh, yeah, super cool Linux. And here's another thing I wanted to pass along to you. Um, I mentioned the deep workbook that was uh, a recommendation from, uh, one of our recording brothers, uh, uh, Chris Lee. And, um, Chris had had turned us on to that in the last episode of Working Class Audio, I believe it was, and I mentioned it and put some links. So, if you want, you can go back and check those links. So, you know, I at that point hadn't downloaded the uh, the book or, or read the book, and I'm I'm a big fan of using Audible, so I I downloaded the book and listened to it on uh, my three mile walk that I do in the mornings. And man, I, I was as I was listening to it, I realized, wow, you know what, uh, taxes. They're, uh, they're looming. And uh, the one last task I had to do was uh, go through um, uh, Mint, which because I use Mint to keep track of my expenses and all the incoming and outgoing of all my accounts. And what I needed to do was go into there and make sure all the categories were correct. Because sometimes, you know, you'll have You know, let's say you buy something from a pro audio place, it'll categorize that as a restaurant, you need to go and recategorize it as you know, equipment bought, you know, or whatever it is, software. And so after getting pretty inspired after my walk and listening to uh, the first round of this deep work, uh, audio book, I was like, you know what, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go over to the library of all places. And I'm going to sit down and I'm going to power through all this category stuff so I can export it and we can give it to our accountant and he can do his tax magic that he does. So I did this and, um, man, so a couple things, uh, the deep workbook, it may be, you know, up your alley. It may not be, you know, check it out for yourself and, and you make that call. Uh, but I got to tell you, man, uh, go into the library, if you got a good public library uh, nearby and maybe you work at home a lot like I do, it's really great to get out and uh, go do work because not only was I able to do work uh, without any distractions, you know, it's like I can shut off all distractions that are incoming and just focus and you're around other people. And I know that, you know, why can't you do that at home? Well, when I'm home, there's you know, the kitchen, which contains the coffee maker and the bathroom is really close. And there's a pair of speakers or two pairs of speakers in front of me constantly. And there's all these potential distractions that will stop me from working on this stuff. So if you need a place where you want to be around other people that are, you know, they're being quiet too, put on some headphones, listen to some music. And uh, I'm listening to the new Fu Manchu record, which is just I love it. I don't know if you've heard it. Not to distract you, but anyways. But on the new Fu Manchu record, and I just sat down and I powered through those categories. And being at the library is great because, you know, if you have a laptop, you know, you don't want to just get up and leave your stuff there. So you're not going to think, oh, maybe I'll go get a drink or a glass of water. There's, You know, those distractions just aren't there because those, you know, things aren't there available to you or at least at my library they're not so um yeah check it out use the library it's full of great resources you know and when i walk in there i'm like oh my god there's all this i forgot about all this stuff you know there's all this music you can borrow there's obviously tons of great books and uh it's a quiet space with people uh free of distractions. so check out your local public library support your local public library Final note before we get to our interview with Jack, Uh, I went to an estate sale. I know. Isn't an estate sale just a garage sale? Well, yeah, kind of. But an estate sale, for those of you that have never been to an estate sale, it's essentially, um, sadly, you have, you know, old people that are living in these, in some cases, these ginormous houses, which is the case for the one I went to, and they just collect and collect and collect and it's really the antithesis of all this, you know, minimalism talk I talk about. So here I, I go to this place. It's this huge house. There's a company running the sale. And you go in and there are, you know, people with T-shirts from this company. They're working everywhere. They're there to answer your questions and ring you up. And there doesn't seem to be much haggling. So anyhow, I found this amazing Zenith old tube radio Probably 1960. I don't know. Maybe 62. From what I can surmise, I'll, I'll have to Google it, figure it out. But I turned it on, let it warm up, and boom! Man, this thing sounded so good. I could not resist it. It was a hundred bucks, so I got it, and uh, and I was actually able to pick up an office chair for my for my 12 year old. Uh, for his desk, because he just had this crappy old chair that was from one of my old studio situations, and it was just falling apart. And I felt, you know, bad that he was using this crappy chair. So for 28 bucks, yeah, found this great office chair. So a couple of resources there I'm pointing out, you know, um, the library, of course, which has a ton of free resources and a great space to go work. Uh, on headphones, if if you're doing audio. I, I don't know if people do that. But uh, anyhow, the library and, you know, keep an eye out for these estate sales, because like I say many times, it's old people that have collected a bunch of stuff. And in many cases, you can find some things that might uh, be useful to your studio situation, to your uh, music making situation. You know, a good office chair is, you know, a great thing. And it's, And it's hard to come by one for $28 at that. So keep an eye out for those things when you see them in your neighborhoods or you see them advertised, head on out. Sometimes it's a pain in the ass because I went the first day this thing was open and there was a line that would have taken me an hour to get through. There were so many people there, a lot of my neighbors. And I just said, ah, screw this. I'll come back. And uh, sure enough, I came back and I was able to make that score. So yeah. Yeah estate sales, garage sales. Yeah. Check it out. And, and I will say this, you know, sometimes I go to these things thinking, Oh, I'm going to score. I'm going to find some like, you know, beautiful old vintage mic that, you know, some old timer had that, you know, nobody knows what it is. And it's marked at like, you know, 25 bucks or something. I know we all have fantasies of those. And the only person that I know, uh, who seems to manage to find the real gems at, uh, garage sales or, Uh, Flea Markets is uh, George Peterson, uh, former editor of Mix Magazine. He always posts great finds that he gets on Facebook. So hey, and uh, be sure to head on over to gearsluts.com and check out the Audio Life subform that we sponsor and uh, have a look around and uh, participate in the discussion if you'd like. And also head on over to Uaudio.com, Visit our friends at Universal Audio and Check out videos from our friends uh, Jakir King and Vance Pal, as well as uh, keep your eyes open for all the promos that they always have going on there, because you don't want to miss out on that if you're in the market for uh, maybe a new Apollo or some plugins or a, or a satellite box to expand your DSP. That's at uaudio.com. Anyhow, that's it. I'm rambling, I know. So let's get on to it. Uh, grab yourself a cup of coffee, kick back, and please welcome my guest, Jack and Dino, here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you on. You're somebody I've wanted to have on for quite some time. And I'm just going to start out by saying, for the audience that will hear this right off the bat, to know about you, they really should go to indino.com. It's quite a comprehensive website that answers a lot of questions. And I think even if you're uh, an up and coming engineer or you're a musician, Wanting to know about the record business, I think that your website really is... I I love how to the point it is, and uh, it's quite good. So I'm just going to recommend people read that to really get a a good view on you.
1: I appreciate that. I just dialed it up here on the internet so I could uh, remind myself, because I'm sure you're probably going to ask me what I've been doing lately, and I have to look at the website in order to uh, remember.
0: (laughs) Uh. You know, I, I met you originally, and like many of my past guests... I've met you through the Tape Op Conference, Potluck Audio Conference, through Craig Schumacher. As I said in my email that I think we've sat down and had a meal or two with groups of people at uh, the Hilton Hotel there in Tucson.
1: Yeah, I was there once.
0: Based on my conversations with you then and based on what I read here on your website, it seems like you are constantly working.
1: Well, I mean, I live in the indie world for the most part, and I am constantly working. I'm always doing something. Uh, aside from playing in two three four however many bands I'm in at any given time I've always got you know some mixing some mastering some production whatever something going on actually yeah that's what I do really so i'm I'm you know I'm kind of a workaholic you might say
0: I, I get that in that it comes through quite clearly uh, on your website and in the frequently asked questions part of that website you you very clearly explain to people who are trying to reach out and want you to record their band or want to, Graduate from recording school and come intern for you. I love how direct you are in saying that your time is short on this planet and you are more interested in, you know, recording good bands and staying on that track. Uh, how many days a week do you think you're working?
1: It's completely random. I don't know. I mean, I'm always, it almost, there's very few days don't go by when I'm not doing something because I have a, there's a studio here that I manage and I also do stuff in my house. I do editing and mastering there. And, you know, there's always something going on. I mean, the, the full session days when I have a band and, you know, we're in the studio for 10 hours a day, that kind of thing. It could vary. I mean, uh, right now I'm here with Windhand for 14 days in a row. But, you know, the more typical job is a local band comes in for, say, two or three days, does some tracking, then goes home and thinks about it a little more, and then comes back, you know, a couple weeks later and does some vocals, and then eventually we mix it. And and all of that stuff is sort of happening simultaneously at, at, at different times and different places on the calendar. You know, and in the meantime, I might be mastering something in the morning, I might be mixing something in my spare time for somebody in another country. I, I have no idea how much how much I work or how to quantify it actually, because you know my actual days in the studio are part of it, but then a lot of it is stuff that I'm doing on my own where I'm not really billing people by the hour. So I keep busy, keep a roof over my head.
0: Yeah, well, you've been at it. If I'm if my math is correct, I think you've been at it for about 34 years. That's about right. And I'm curious if you know, how the workload today compares to 10, 20, even 30 years ago. You know what? I've never stopped. It's
1: never really, you know, except for there was a brief time, there was a couple of years in the middle of the nineties. I, I jokingly refer to it as the grunge hangover years. It's, uh, you know, like 95, 96, 97, when, uh, everybody was tired of guitars and tired of Seattle and tired of, of rock actually. And um, there was, you know, other trends in motion and and things got a little slow for me for a little bit. And then around 98, it all turned around again. And I remember in 98, 99, I was working with Zeke and the Makers and Zen Gorilla and the Murder City Devils and, and, uh, gosh, there were a bunch of other bands that all suddenly came out of the woodwork at once. And it's just been relentless ever since then. You know, I I sort of ride these trends a little bit. I remember I recorded Nebula in 99, and then so I ended up doing, you know, a number of sort of desert rock or stoner rock bands after that. I did High on Fire in 2007, ended up with a bunch of metal bands for a while after that. I remember when I did Hot, Hot Heat, I think it was around 2002, (laughs) I got a bunch of sort of, you know, new wave pop kind of bands for a few years. You know, it's, it's random. Uh, There's always something and at this point having recorded well over 500 albums or EPs There's always something that has influenced somebody somewhere One of those is somebody's favorite record somewhere on the planet and if they grow up and start a band They might call me, you know, so you never know when I'm going to get a call from somebody from, you know, Argentina or something who's a big Coffin Break fan, for instance, and I'll go, Coffin Break? How did you hear Coffin Break? And, you know, I realize, oh, yeah, that's right. They were on Epitaph. They got all over the world. Or an Accused fan, somebody whose favorite Accused record came out in 1989, or, you know, heaven forbid, uh, some more obscure thing that nobody even remembers. So, you know, it all kind of feeds on itself. The The downside of the internet right now is that nobody finds out that I actually recorded a band. They download the files and they don't know who produced it or who recorded it unless they seek out the credits somehow. So, you know, I mention a lot of times, hey, I recorded this record and people go, really? I didn't know you did that. So there's that, but you know, I'm on social media. I've got a website. It's not a secret what I'm doing,
0: yeah. it almost seems like nowadays, uh, producers and engineers have to be more proactive in letting others know what they work on because those credits typically are not available or readily available. Correct. You know, so people can't, you know, pick up the album cover. so, yeah, and it's
1: true. and and I'm really not very good at self-promotion. I'm terrible at it. I haven't had a business card in decades. You know, I keep thinking I should print some up and I just don't. And, you know, the the, the my poor website, which is, you know, it looks kind of uh, state of the HTML art 2002. <laughs> you know, I just taught myself CSS a few years ago to try and get it a little more up to date. So at least you could read most of it on a cell phone. Uh, I code it all myself by hand. You know, i I don't have time to update it all the time. I maybe once a year, I add to the discography, and Facebook is really kind of making me tired these days. I could do a lot more promoting myself. But the fact is, I have enough work. I'm not desperate for more right now. The work that I want seems to find its way to me and and uh, and it's okay. And if I you know if I get a slow patch, I put a few posts up on the internet and work comes in.
0: I talked to Mark Needham about this problem where you can get typecast as, you know, a, the grunge guy or the indie rock guy or whatever, sure. um, how have you managed to avoid that over the years and work across multiple genres?
1: I don't think I have avoided it entirely. I have to say that the grunge thing was kind of a kind of a pain for a while, but now everybody's kind of over it. And again, you know, after you've done another four or 500 records after that era, the problem takes care of itself. It still, like, drives me crazy when people, uh, I see my name, you know, listed somewhere and they put parentheses after it, Nirvana, Soundgarden, Mudhoney. So it's like, Jack and Dino, parentheses, Nirvana, Soundgarden, Mudhoney. So there's like three records that I did before 1990, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and great, you know. and But, you know, what about Zeke? What about High on Fire? What about Hot, Hot Heat? You know, what about my five gold records for Titans in Brazil? You're never going to hear about those in the U.S., you know, and my Bruce Dickinson record I made in the UK and, and you know, th- just like there's all kinds of weird stuff on my discography. There's a therapy record, you know, but... uh Everybody remembers the Seattle grunge explosion thing. And so that's sort of, you know, that's the easiest shorthand for people to sort of go, who is this guy? Where does he fit in the picture? And meanwhile, I'm, you know, just, I just keep on recording other bands. I did win a Latin Grammy this year, which was kind of entertaining for a record that I did for a Brazilian pop artist. His name is Nando Reis. I've known him for oh, almost got close to 30 years. And that was kind of nice. I have a, I have a Grammy with, it, it's inscribed in Portuguese, actually.
0: That's very cool. Which, again, is,
1: leaves people in the United States completely baffled because they'll never hear any of this music. But I have clients in 14 countries, or actually, I have been to 14 countries recording bands. And there's probably clients in other countries that I haven't been to who have sent me stuff to mix. So, you know, whether people associate me with this or that, it doesn't really matter anymore. There's just the body of work has become big enough that I, I don't think I'm easily classifiable except that I have to say that I'm really I'm a rock and pop guy I like a good song I like hooks even when I'm doing a doom band I'm looking for the hook you know is this a good song is this holding my attention are there enough events in this piece of music to keep me interested in it and to keep other people interested in it I mean you know even when I'm doing a crazy death metal band I'm still thinking like a pop guy. You know, at the same time that I'm trying to get the most extreme guitar tone I can get, I'm still thinking, is this a good song? Do we have good material here? You know, the basic rules of songwriting, they're not really rules, but they don't change. So, you know, I I do what I do. I I tell people jokingly, I'm a pop guy, even though they look at me and think, well, what's all this like heavy stuff on your discography? It's all rock and roll. So I guess I'm a rock and roll guy. Let's put it that way.
0: Are you ever baffled by... People calling you, and you think, w- "What what kind of music are you guys doing?" And you want me to record it? Does that ever cross your mind? that yes, that has happened,
1: and I've turned people down when I think that you know, I don't get this, and there's nothing I can contribute to this aesthetically because I have no way to judge it. You know, if there's music that's so completely foreign to me, I think, well, I could I could stretch my myself here, and you know, and and uh, you know, do something really unfamiliar to me. But then on the other hand. If I don't have a a working aesthetic sense for what's good and what's bad about the music, I'm kind of disqualified from working on it. I mean, I could pretend that I could do, you know, say a traditional country record or something like that, but there's too much that I probably don't know and that I probably don't have the background for. And it would probably be producer malpractice of me to take things on that, that I just have no experience or aesthetic to, you know, to, to be able to, to make good artistic decisions about. I mean, you can't be good at everything. And I mean, some people are, are better at other things, you know, like I don't work on my own car anymore. I figure it's, <laughs> I used to do that. And uh, it's like, oh, okay, no, let somebody else who's got the specialized knowledge should be doing this. It doesn't have to be me. And I tell people all the time, I said, look, you know, it doesn't have to be me that makes this record. There's plenty of other good producers who could do this particular music that you're doing. So I have no problem turning things down if they're out of my comfort zone. You know, I mean, I am I like new challenges and things like that. But I also, after this much time doing it, I have a pretty good hunch that hits me when I hear something. is like, is this up my alley? No, it's not. And, you know, you can be polite about it. You just say, look, I don't, I don't get this. And therefore I'm not qualified to do it. Get it. You know, it's not that I'm dissing you. I'm not telling you, you suck. I'm just like, this isn't really what I should be working on because I don't get it. And then people go, oh, okay. And that's a, that's a kind of a, it's the most honest way to, to, to put it actually, if something's not right for you.
0: Yeah. And, and producer malpractice. I love that, that term, that, (laughs) <laughs> I've learned a new term today.
1: I've dealt with a lot of it because, you know what? Here's here's a little niche that I seem to be inhabiting now. I've become kind of the forensic remixer of a lot of old rock stuff. And I mean, I'm not doing like, you know, ah, Stephen Wilson. Stephen Wilson, he's got himself a, a great niche remixing classic albums from the 70s. I'm so envious because a lot of those are records that I grew up on. But I've become kind of like the... The, the impossible mixing guy like you know okay i took uh the first Soundgarden full album is called ultra mega okay of course i had nothing to do with this record originally but i ended up remixing it last year and that was pretty satisfying because it was a case where the original mixes were kind of not didn't really hit the nail on the head and right now i'm up to my neck in a green river archival project sub pop is going to put it out and it's again, it's a case where Green River, this is the band that sort of split and became one faction became Pearl Jam and the other faction became Mudhoney. But this was from 1987, 88. Green River did an album that they ended up finishing the record after the band had broken up and Sub Pop released the record. It was called Rehab Doll. They released it sort of posthumously. The band, the members had already gone on to these other bands. So the record didn't really get a fair shake in the mix down. It was kind of a, they rushed it and nobody really seemed to give a shit at the time. Anyway, I got handed this record to remix and discovered that it was an amazing rock record. (laughs) It's like my favorite record this year. So I'm remixing that. Somebody gave me some recordings of a band that Bruce Pabbit was in in 1981. They recorded this uh, at Multitrack in Olympia, Washington. And again, all anybody had heard for like, 30 years or so, 35 years was a really, you know, aged, rough mixed cassette that had been dubbed a few times. And I discovered once again, like, these tracks are great. Let me see if I can make a good mix. So, and, you know, other people have suggested sending me, you know, records that they did years ago that they weren't happy with so I can try remixing them. So I've kind of become good at mixing things that are like impossible to mix. And, you know, archival and what I call forensic remixing, because I have to do a lot of baking of tapes and, you know, transferring old formats like, you know, Akai Beta 12 track tapes and things like that. that Oh, yeah. Yeah, nobody has a machine for that anymore. And sure enough, I was able to find one. So... Yeah. Forensic remixer. That's what I've been doing a lot of lately. And and it seems like there's more on the horizon. So that's kind of fun.
0: Yeah. I was going to ask, is that an enjoyable process? Like hunting down an old Akai machine that's, you know, only found on, you know, maybe two people on eBay you can find, have it?
1: Yeah, it's exactly. I put the word out and suddenly one comes along, you know, uh, hopefully that won't happen again. I, I don't expect to, to need an Akai 12 Mac Twelve track machine ever again, (laughs) but uh, but that's an example. Uh, And you know, I've been uh, I've been baking tapes. I've got a a, oh, it's the Snackmaster Pro food dehydrator. Is like it's it's, it's, I think there's a picture of it on my website somewhere. It's like it's a marvelous thing for for baking ten inch reels, so that you can transfer them without them gumming everything up. So analog, I'm kind of done with it, but you still have to deal with it for old stuff. I had to get new pinch rollers for my tape machines just this year. If if they break, who fixes these things anymore? But that's another can of worms.
0: Just more on the uh, on on this forensic mixing thing. How does that work come to you? Does that is that something that just by word of mouth people go, oh, Jack and Dina will do that, or or does Sandy, your manager at World's In, uh, tackle that?
1: Most work comes to me by word of mouth. Actually, you know, it's that's how this business works. I think M- almost everything comes to me directly by word of mouth or by internet or by email or whatever. I'm not hard to find. I mean, I have a band camp page. I tell people, look, here's the little contact form. Yeah. I mean, it's always been that way. That's why, like I said, I haven't had a business card in forever because I don't really, I'm not really out there promoting myself. So I'm kind of, I've kind of been under the radar for 30 years, just working, working like crazy. And you don't hear about it that much, except occasionally, you know, something I do like pokes up above the, uh, you know, pokes out enough for people to notice it and go, oh yeah, I still get, I still run into people who are like, oh yeah, you did that Nirvana record. We didn't know you were still making records. I'm like, okay, <laughs> you <laughs> need to pay attention to some Seattle bands. Uh, cause I'm still based in Seattle and I, you know, probably, you know, 70% of my work is still bands from this part of the country.
0: It's interesting. You know, you talk about the business card and I, I'm curious if you would agree with me on this. If it seems that when you, kind of go the traditional routes of marketing yourself, business cards or ads in magazines or uh, the more mainstream ways of, of marketing oneself, it seems that we get more types of bands that you you make a very clear point of on your website saying that you don't want to work with, like vanity projects or projects where the artist doesn't have a band and is asking you to put the band together. Uh, is that your experience?
1: Yeah. I'm completely allergic to those projects. I have no interest in, in, you know, being like the, being the songwriter, or, you know, making the backing tracks for somebody to sing over or any of that stuff. No interest in that whatsoever. That's just not my gig. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm interested in people who are able to write songs and perform them. And I'm interested in helping them capture that. You know, I'm a band guy or maybe a solo artist guy. It doesn't matter, I, but there has to be a performing entity for me to be interested in it. You know, and I've done jobs where I've had to hire backing musicians and it's, you know, hiring a drummer is one thing. It's, it's, I know a couple of guys I can call some, you know, ninja drummers that I can, that I can give a call if I need to, but it's always a little weird to me because uh, a band, frankly, music that's performed in real time by actual players responds well to rehearsing. You know, uh, the performances respond well to actual rehearsal time being spent and, if you get a bunch of people in the studio and you, you know, you're, you're like, okay, we're going to learn this song and record it today, uh, you know, they could be the best players in the world, but you're going to get a certain kind of performance out of them. It might be extremely competent. It might be very good. It might be solid, but it's not the same as, you know, that sort of mutual ESP thing that you get from performers who've played together for a little while. It's just, it's, it can be a bit sterile frankly, and I'm not interested in sterile. I have to say, I've I've made this point many times, but I'm absolutely allergic to click tracks. Don't use them. Never use them. There you go.
0: Once again, I know I keep coming back to your website because it's that thorough, in my opinion. You say that if your drummer could is capable of playing to a click track, then they're probably more than capable of playing without one.
1: I believe that to be the case most of the time. You know, because a crappy drummer is going to be a crappy drummer whether he's playing with a click track or without a click track. And he's going to sound a lot worse playing to the click track. Now, granted, if you have the hours or days or weeks necessary to time align every single drum hit onto a grid, you can make an amateur drummer sound like a good drummer playing rigidly and precisely to a click track. <laughs> and if that's what you have to do, and if you have no other option, I suppose you could do that, but that doesn't have to be me. you know Someone else could take that job. Life is too short for me to spend days and days of my time lining up drums to a grid. And frankly, music should breathe a little bit. And if it's not breathing, I'm not that interested in listening to it.
0: Jack and Dino here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. We're going to pause and I'm going to tell you all about the blue-black headphones from Audio-Technica. That's right. Our friends over at Audio-Technica have a new set of limited edition headphones. It's the uh, ATH-M50Xs in a blue-black color. Very beautiful. If you're tired of the same old dull black and you want to do something a little snazzier than... These blue-black ones are pretty fancy. So uh, check them out. They're a limited edition. You can get them at audio-technica.com. You can buy them right off the website. And uh, that's it. Check them out. Great-looking headphones. Let's get back to it. Jack and Dino here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. With regards to uh, the amount that you work and, and your comments on being a workaholic, what are your thoughts on your own personal work-life balance? Do you feel that, you get enough life outside of the studio to offset what you do in the studio?
1: Yes. And I'll tell you how I do it. I still play in at least three bands right now. It was four bands, but right now one of them is on hiatus because somebody's getting a knee replacement. But so I'm in three actual performing bands right now that all have gigs coming up within the next month. Two of them I play guitar. Actually, let me think. The one that I play bass for, that was Upwell, and that band is on hiatus for a few months. MKB Ultra, I play guitar with. We have a gig coming up in a couple weeks. I'm playing in a current sort of um, reformed version of Sky Cries Mary. It's actually more of a uh, brand new conception of the band. So I'm playing guitar with that. We have a couple gigs coming up. And I have uh, an improv power trio that I play guitar for called Beyond Captain Orca. And that also has a gig coming up in the next month. It, it's important to me to, to stay busy as a player even though I don't kid myself that I'm ever going to make any kind of career out of being a musician, that's not the point. The point is to have a creative outlet. Because if you're here recording other people, you're basically watching other people have all the fun all the time. (laughs) You know, and it's like, well, I got to play guitar too. Uh, And you know, I was a musician before I was a recording engineer. So even back in the 80s, when I was recording all those early sub pop records, I was in three bands. Actually, one of them, I was drumming, one of them, I was playing bass, one of them... I was playing guitar, which was Skin Yard. And even as recently as 2010, I was drumming in another band, but I finally had to give that up because I was having tendinitis issues because I'm not 25 anymore. Um, So, you know, the balance is I don't, I try not to work too much so that I have time for, you know, band rehearsals and playing shows occasionally and, and just, you know, giving my life some additional meaning that way. My girlfriend is in one band with me, actually. So there's another part of my personal life. Um, She's a musician and a singer as well, Mia Boyle. And, you know, things are fine. I I get to basically, you know, I'm living and breathing music most of the time. I mean, as far as things that I do that have nothing to do with music, I do a lot of hiking. Every chance I get, I go out to the woods or up in the mountains. Pretty much I get an unexpected day off and the sun is out, jump in my car, I'm out of here. You know, beyond that, I'm always tinkering with amps. I'm kind of an amateur electronic repair guy. My living room basically looks like an amp shop. I fix things. So (laughs) whether I'm fixing your amp or your drum sound or your arrangement of your song, I'm always fixing something. (laughs) I've fixed a lot of amps right in the studio, actually, in the middle of sessions. That is, it's a part of the service. You know, I'll end up intonating somebody's guitar and I might end up biasing somebody's tube amp, like right on the spot. Uh, it's just
0: part of the deal. Part of the service. It, it is. Being that you've been at this for, you know, three decades, over three decades, now into the fourth decade, what you have learned—let's uh, start with what you've learned from a business perspective and and how to best structure your your time, your money, and giving your recording career longevity—
1: I'll tell you something about the longevity thing. Basically, I never let myself burn out on it. I keep a lid on it so that I'm not working too much. I don't, you know, do crazy 14, 15-hour days anymore. I could do that when I was 28. I can't do it now. You know, I'm not sure if I'm the best role model for people because, frankly, you know, part of the reason I still do this is that I keep my overhead low. I don't have house payments. I don't have car payments. I didn't have kids. Uh, I'm not paying anybody alimony. (laughs) You know, I stay out of debt. Uh, You know, I don't have expensive habits of any kind. I don't really have any habits at all. You know, I don't live under any like, I don't live under any self-imposed financial pressure that forces me to make, you know, possibly bad artistic decisions about what I'm doing. So it allows me to stick with working with music that I like, which may not necessarily be the music that would pay me the most money. If I wanted to totally cash in, then I probably should have moved to Los Angeles from Seattle in 1991 when the grunge thing blew up, and I probably could have cleaned up, but that was not and has never been my goal just living frugally and with some integrity and and sticking to what I what I like doing you know because it's it's I know exactly when I'm doing something I shouldn't be doing it's when I you know when I get up in the morning and I can't look at myself in the mirror it's like all right I'm obviously doing music that I have no business working on right now and there's nothing worse than doing something because you know it's a job you have to do it oh my god I need the money no I've structured my life in such a way that I don't have to make bad artistic decisions in order to keep a roof over my head. So that's part of it. Now, frankly, if you know if you've had two or three kids and you've had a couple of marriages, and you know you you're driving a you know a brand new SUV or something, and you've got car payments and whatnot, this career might perhaps not be the best one for you to get into. And I tell people, I tell students this all the time because the, the recording schools are cranking out recording schools. Don't get me started. They're cranking out students constantly, and I get people coming through all the time wanting to be interns. And I just have to I to say, look, you know, there's a handful of us in each major city that are actually making. Making a living doing this, doing this niche that I do, which is recording rock and roll bands, it's very much of a niche. You kind of have to, you know, create your own little your own little thing out of nothing. Your mileage may vary, and you better have a backup plan because you know you may not be in the middle of you know a cultural explosion in the first part of your career like I was. You know. Yeah. I don't know what else I can tell you, really. The reason I'm still doing it and the people are still interested in, in me doing what I'm doing is the other thing is that I continue getting better at it. Like, you know, I haven't stayed stuck in one particular technique. Like now I mix everything in the box, which, you know, 30 years ago I was slicing two-inch tape with razor blades and, uh, you know, doing my editing on quarter-inch tape by splicing different pieces of songs together there's a beautiful Trident 80B console sitting here in front of me, about two feet away from me. I recapped it myself last year. It belongs to the studio that I manage, which is SoundHouse here in Seattle. But, you know, I use it when I'm tracking, but like I said, now I'm mixing in the box and nobody can tell the difference because it's like when I started digging into digital in the 90s and I I was confronted with a few studios that only had blackface ADAT machines. You know, those little things that recorded 8-tracks of digital on VHS cartridges. And initially, everybody hated the way they sound, but you just had to sort of change your recording techniques a little bit and you could get them to sound good. And it's the same way with, you know, learning how to record digitally and now learning how to mix in the box. Uh, once again, it's just once you get good at it and learn how to do what you want, you get your sound, you get your aesthetic going, and work just goes on and nobody seems to care. Nobody, they don't care how I'm doing it as long as the sounds that I'm getting are good. So Staying current is important. That's what I'm saying.
0: Yeah, one of the things I've always said, and and my listeners have heard me say this thousands of times. In to make a a food analogy, as long as the meal tastes good, nobody gives a shit how you made it, what kind of stove you use, or what kinds of pot, what kind of pots and pans you used.
1: Yeah, it's more or less true, actually. And you know, I say this as somebody who spent a lot of time making records on analog tape, and I'm over it. I'm really, truly over it. I enjoyed working at 15 inches per second when that was an option. When I realized that 30 IPS analog was a horrible, horrible recording medium. I will say that until the day I die. Um, And when digital came along, suddenly that horrible, scratchy shrillness of 30 IPS went away. And I was back to a nice, fat, consistent low end again which is what I used to have recording at half speed on uh, older tape formats. This is a funny thing. I have a strange way of thinking about this, but um, yeah, no one cares how you're doing it. And the other thing, people are used to the convenience now. I can mix something and someone can come back to me three weeks later and say, hey, you know, we've been listening to these mixes. Can you go back and change blah, blah, blah? And I can just open the session and make the change and send them the mix in 15 minutes. I couldn't do that before mixing in the box and, and I think I'm a little late to the game. I think people have been doing this for a long time. I was dragged cricking, kicking and screaming into uh, into working this way and of course here I am you know and now I look at it and I think, you know you know I don't really the whole thing with the the giant mixing console I, I looked at SSL consoles this way for many, many years. I recorded them they're like player pianos to me. they're so completely clunky and annoying. And, you know, I'm literally just mixing with a mouse and an ASCII keyboard, and it's no one can tell the difference. Give me a rack of preamps, and I'm good.
0: Allow me to play devil's advocate a little bit to that. I I am an in-the-box person myself, so I agree with you on all the conveniences and everything. I'll, I'll bring Steve Albini into the equation. And what I really finally got to the bottom of with Steve was... It's not that Steve objects to the conveniences of digital recording. What he seems to object to is the longevity of the format. And he I guess he feels that if you're recording in Pro Tools, you're essentially recording on a medium that ultimately is disposable that is not going to be around in 10, 30, 40 years. Um, I'm just curious if you have an opinion about the longevity of the digital recording mediums we have.
1: I think he's completely correct. Nonetheless, I think the same thing could be said about analog tape formats. Because frankly, everything I own on analog tape that is more than 15 years old is unplayable right now. Every single tape has to be baked. And and we're talking like baked, seriously baked. Like, you know, baked for like two days, some of them. I had one of the Green River tapes that I had to deal with was it was... AGFA. It was an AGFA reel. AGFA is a a tape manufacturer that is somewhat forgotten now. But back in the 80s, we had Scotch, we had Ampex, we had BASF, and we had AGFA. And those were the four different places where you would get two-inch tape. Ampex was kind of the standard in the U.S. Scotch, some people used it. BASF was more popular in Europe. And I don't know, AGFA tapes appeared sometimes. Anyway, I had four two-inch reels of this Green River album that I had to resurrect um, this year. One of them was Agfa tape, and the others were Ampex, and I was able to bake them sometimes a couple of times to the point where the tape would actually play on the tape machine enough that I could transfer the data off it at 2496. The Agfa reel, no matter how long I baked it, it got worse because the gunk that was coming off it was some different chemical, and ultimately, it was this white goo instead of the brown stuff. And ultimately, what I had to do is I had to take this cloth that it's the kind of thing that you wipe your glasses with. Uh, it's a very fine, non non abrasive kind of cloth. I had to literally like a wrap microfiber it cloth. Yeah, it's something like that. I had some actually that I got last time. I got some glasses. I had to wrap it around a pencil and I had to hold it against the tape while playing the tape from beginning to end on the tape machine while this white gunk slowly came off the tape and stuck to this thing that was wrapped around the pencil and i had to do that like 3 or 4 times to get all this gunk that was coming off the tape to to stop coming off on the heads i literally had to sit there with a pencil pushing against the tape just so Not so much that the tape machine would trip out and turn itself off or burn out the motor. Uh, Just insane things that I've had to do to to resurrect analog formats. So I'm afraid that Steve has a point, but I would make the same point about every analog tape format out there. I have, right now, a reel of 16-track half-inch that I need to find somebody who has a working Fostex B16 machine that I can transfer it on. Now, that machine had a particular format. I think it was, was Dolby C. The DBX, or excuse me, the, Fo- the the Tascam equivalent of that machine used DBX instead of Dolby C. Those two noise reduction systems are not really compatible. Um, so I have to find the same machine that recorded this tape. Most of those machines have worn out and no one can fix them. I have some quarter-inch 8-track tapes. Again, I have to find a Fostex A8 uh, or something equivalent to it. Nobody seems to have one that works. So, it's, I would make the same point about analog, is the clock is ticking on the format. I don't think digital audio is going to go away. Uh, one thing you can say about it is once it's out on the internet, it's always going to be there somewhere. But as far as the original multi-track, that's a tough call, and it remains a tough call. So, you know, there's going to come a time when we don't have any more of these 2-inch 24-track machines that, any, you know, that, that are working or the tapes just become so far gone that the baking them isn't working anymore. In short, it's Steve's right, but what are you going to do? And everybody is so addicted to convenience of being able to, to work in the box. And also, it takes less money. And people don't have the money to spend on recording that they had 20 years ago. The budgets are not there. The industry infrastructure where money would be thrown at bands in order to record... Uh, that's gone. So people want to make records quickly and efficiently. And at this point, that's what I have to do because that's what people want me to do.
0: The drop in budget, in the sizes of budgets, uh, seems to work harmoniously with your way of living, which is living with, you know, with a low overhead.
1: Well, it's not just that. It's that I've gotten really good at making records in three or four days if that's what I have to do and it's not that i'm not charging enough money it's that i'm not i'm not saying look i need 2 months to make this record it's like well you really only have money to record for 4 or 5 days well i can do it fast if you can do it fast i can work efficiently if you can work efficiently let's see how it works and bands can you know they focus <laughs> when they have to they focus and they get a record done and if you know if i need to work fast i can do it that's another thing that's important it allows me to get more work done in the same period of time, because it's not like I'm not charging. I'm charging more than I did back in the old days, of course, but I'm also able to work a lot faster than I was. My God, if I had to go back to doing a record on two inch, it would just be, I would go insane. It would be so painfully slow.
0: What are some of the things that bands do that slow their progress in the studio that, that keep them from being efficient?
1: Insecurity and okay, bad equipment is one thing because if you know, if someone comes in and the drum set is just this terrible, horrible thing, I tell everybody, change your heads, you know, change the drum heads, change the strings, you know, check your tubes in your amp. I mean, make sure the gear is all up to it before you come to the studio. Rehearse, make sure the songs are ready so that you're not arguing about the arrangement with each other in the studio. You know, there's a lot of ways of being prepared and being efficient in the studio, but I find. The work expands to fill the time available. And sometimes if people are given more time to record, like, you know, someone, you know, dumps a bunch of money on them or whatever, all that happens is it gives them more time to be insecure about what they're doing. And they start second guessing everything they do to death, which does not necessarily serve the music well. I find a lot of time is wasted in the studio, huge amounts of time. And it makes me impatient because I know how quickly good records can be made. And spending boatloads of time in the studio is not necessarily, you know, it's a way to make people, it's a way for people to feel like they're doing, they're working really hard. But like I said, it, it just, it, it work. if you have more time, you're going to find things to do to fill that time. And
0: I don't know. It's a, that's a tough call. People point to the limitations of analog tape, taking that concept of limitations into the studio and, and talking about what you're saying, where if bands have too much time, they get, you know, they fill it up and they waste time. Do you find that if you're limited on your time, a band tends to not waste it as much if, if they say you have two days and that's it? Yeah, exactly.
1: Exactly. People get in, they they rehearse, they prepare, they get in, we get, you know, we set up, we get rolling in three hours. You know, by dinner time we've got three or four songs recorded. We take a break, we go back, we do the, we record the vocals, and then the next day we're mixing an EP. If people know that that's what they have to do, they generally have no problem doing it. And, you know, frankly, you're going to get a record that sounds like it was mixed in one day. And I don't recommend that particularly. <laughs> I need a couple of days to really do a good job or at least be able to come back to it and, 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 uh, touch it up afterwards because you're going to get something that pretty much sounds like every song is, is the same sonically because, yeah. you know, that's how you don't have time to stop and change out to a different guitar amp or use a different drum set or whatever. But again, for most rock and roll bands, um, you know, are not artistically broad enough to demand that much time or or variety or whatever. And, you know, frankly, a lot of giant million-selling records still sound exactly the same from song to song, even if they spent two, three months in the studio. I mean, think of how many classic rock records, you know, ACDC records. It's the same sound on every record, on every song. And there's the whole aesthetic thing about are you capturing a live performance, or are you creating a unique piece of art using the band and the studio as this kind of... In other words, is the record a unique piece of artistic expression that doesn't necessarily have to exactly reflect a live performance by musicians in real time? I maintain that frequently it is. Uh, It doesn't have to be an exact photograph of what the band is doing in real time. It's art. You're making art. There's no rules. At the same time, With some bands, the right approach is you get them playing in a room together, you capture it, you make it sound good, and you make it sound as though it was a live performance because well actually it is you're trying to capture that live feel in what is basically a somewhat sterile environment that's the that's the real magic if you can pull that off in a recording studio you're doing well and that's sort of that's that's always been high on my list of priorities when i'm recording a band is let's let's capture the live feel as much as we can uh, even though you know we're not in front of a room full of screaming people. God, what was the question again? <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, no, no. It, it originated as, you know, in terms of people, you know, having a limitation on their time in the studio.
1: Ah, right. This is, here's a crucial thing. Uh, years ago, when, you know, when I started, it was with half-inch 8-track, an Atari MX-5050 Mark three, wonderful machine. And it does focus people because you have to get the good performance on there. You're going to get... You know, three drum tracks, a bass track, two guitar tracks, and two vocal tracks. So they better be good, you know. You know, you can't layer everything or double it or do this or that. You know, the song has to stand up played very minimally. If it doesn't, it focuses you to to look at the song and go, well, maybe this isn't that good a song. Now the only limitation people have is time and money. uh, Because you've got, you know, umpteen tracks available to you you know everybody's got their own little recording rig or whatever so the limitations sometimes were good from an artistic standpoint then at the same time you're not going to make a record like the wall or you know you know some you're not going to make some giant artistic statement on you know a four track or an eight track machine you, but then again some people have so there's no rules i enjoyed working on eight track i was Excited when I had a 16 track available to me. It was very natural to me when I finally got to work on 24 track after a couple of years and in, into my career. And, you know, now in Pro Tools, I try and I try and keep a lid on it. You know, when people send me things to mix and I look at the screen and it's scrolling and scrolling and scrolling. Oh, there's 72, 84 tracks, whatever. And sometimes I just turn those down. It's just, no, this is a pain in the ass. I don't want to mix this.
0: <laughs> Life's too short. I've heard others say that. Give me
1: something fun. You know, this is horrible. So, yeah. you know, I turned, those, I turned those jobs down because it's obvious that somebody had way too much time and really lost sight of what's the important parts of the music. You know, do you need five mics on every guitar? Well, I shouldn't say that. I've done that myself. Um, <laughs> anything I'm telling you about, I've done myself as well. So I'm, I'm, uh, I'm not innocent.
0: You speak from experience. I do. When you mix, do you have a preference of having an audience of the band or mixing by yourself?
1: Generally what I do is I tell people to get lost for like the first half of the day or something like that. Or if it's a big project, maybe a whole day. Like I need time to get all the the mousing and just the housekeeping as it were, the topping and tailing, the crossfades, the whatever editing needs to be done to sort of tidy it all up you know getting rid of the stick clicks and you know this you know figuring out what's the what's the overall tone I'm going to get on these drums what EQ do I want you know making decisions that require a lot of concentrating and listening and just going through the songs and trying to get in my head a, a global understanding of where the record is going to go that's useful if I do it by myself and just concentrate and then at a certain point when all that the bullshit is out of the way, and now you can just start listening and making decisions about the songs and about the sounds. Then it's like, all right, come on in. Now I'm ready to play you something. We actually have a starting point here. Let's listen to it. Tell me where you want this song to go. So yeah, I always start by myself, and then you know call the band in. Now, if I'm doing it remotely, you know, a band from Chile or Italy or something sends me uh, stuff to mix, then I'll usually do what I call mix zero. Of everything i'll just i'll i'll get it sort of in the ballpark of where i think maybe it's going to go and i'll say all right here's some mixes understand that these are kind of like roughs this is where i could be going with it you know and i'll email them the you know mp3s or whatever and say okay give me some direction here what do you like you know do you want more kick do you want more reverb are the guitars too quiet do you want more effects on the vocals where should i go with this and then they give me some direction and then i bang out another set of, of mixes and we sort of refine it from there. If I'm doing it in person though, uh, I do what you're, what you're describing where I, I, know, I I say, okay, give me a few hours and then show up later in the day. And then we'll really dig into it. I have to say, I work faster when there's a band looking over my shoulder, as long as they're not talking me to death. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. That's, that's never fun. Having people chit chat while you mix.
1: I'm good at tuning it out though. I really am. I've gotten good at it. It's especially good in foreign countries when they're they're chatting in a foreign language, and it's easy for me to tune it out completely.
0: Well, Jack, thank you so much for being on the show. It's it's great to uh, talk to you and get your take on things, and uh, I appreciate your time.
1: Yep, it's a pleasure. We'll see you.
0: Okay, Jack, take care. Jack and Dino here on the Working Class Audio podcast. Another one down. Thanks for sticking around for another great interview. Well, we got to thank all of our sponsors. Of course, before we go, they make the show possible. And I'm talking about Gearslits.com, Focal Monitors, Audio Technica, and Universal Audio. And we got to thank Cliff Truesdell, Chuck Smith, and Cole Williams. And I got to thank you all. I appreciate the fact that you come here week after week and listen to these interviews and spend some time with me. Tell all your friends, get on social media, spread the word, and keep going. Take care.